It's good to see everybody tonight. Pastor Greg was going to be here tonight. He uh, has afforded, uh, you know, the whole, we talked about this Monday night a little bit. We had a new membership class, and the graciousness of, of, uh, of Greg and the elder team is that we want to promote uh, and raise up people who teach and who lead, uh, whether it's a small setting or a one-on-one -on -one setting or a, a group setting. And uh, Pastor Greg had planned on being here tonight and asked if I would like to teach, and I said, absolutely. Well, actually, I said, let me pray about it. And then, then I, I prayed about it. I, of course, the next day I said, absolutely, I'd love to. And then I read the text. <laughs> I said, well, no, that's, I, I can still do that. But, you know, but it's, it's fantastic. It's an amazing text we're going to go through tonight. But um, I want to welcome everybody on the live stream that's watching from home. I, I'm glad you can cozy up on the couch and, and uh, get out your Bibles. And uh, this is going to be a wonderful evening. This text that we're going through tonight is uh, it's powerful. It's amazing. It's almost like a movie, and uh, so I'm looking forward to it. Um, I was telling my uh, my wife said you need to say this thing, but I, on Monday night we had a again we had a new membership class for the church, and I said Thursday nights for me, I rarely miss Thursday nights. Thursday nights for me are like remember the the uh, the Hot Wheels cars, and they were like little and they had the little plastic tracks, and it was so basically you had to. To get the things going, you had to put the car on the track, and it would speed down, and then you might have, you might have enough momentum for it to zoom on. That was the first stage. Then they came out with these little Hot Wheels cars that in the track itself, every so often, was a little, some sort of electromagnetic thing. And when the cars went over that little thing, it just, boom, it boosted them along. And that's what I feel like Thursday nights are for me. We go on Sunday, it's a wonderful message, we gather with the body, and on Thursday nights, uh, it's just, just what we need, you know. Sometimes people have it on Wednesday nights, whatever, but it's just a wonderful time, and that's the way I look at this. I hate to miss this ever, and I just am thrilled with the opportunity to share with you tonight. Uh, we're going to be uh, finishing up uh, the, the fifth chapter of Samuel, first to Samuel, and then we're going to be getting into chapter six, and so uh, I'm just excited about it. So let's open with prayer. Father, we thank you for this day, Lord. Thank you for uh, every breath that you give us, Father. Thank you for allowing us to, to rise out of bed this morning, to get here tonight, to be present, Lord, to have the opportunity to study your word, which you have revealed to us and that you have, have for us here on earth, Father. Lord, we ask that the Holy Spirit help illuminate the text tonight as we study, Lord, so that we can gain an understanding of not only what happened in the narrative, but we can understand better who you are. In your name we pray, Father. Amen. 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 Well, if there was a title for this teaching tonight, and if you're taking notes, you might want to write this down at the top, because it's, gonna, it's, it's, a, it's something that just it's powerful, it goes throughout the whole thing, and it's a question. Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? Who is able to stand before the Lord, comma, this holy God? Now, what I'd like to do tonight is kind of recap. Let's kind of go back in time a little bit to gain an understanding of what was happening at the time so we can pick it up in chapter 5 and move forward. So, if you'll remember, in chapter 5... Uh, there was a battle, basically. And so the Israelites 
maybe casually, maybe not, said, hey, let's throw the ark, grab the ark, and we're going to take it to the battlefield, and we're going to, you know, it'll be there. Because the ark of the covenant, which was God's holy representation of him on earth, had gone through the desert with them. It had fought, it had been in battles with them. It is, they had it around Jericho. So it was pretty common that they would take this thing and they would, they would take it into battle. So they took it in this particular battle and they were defeated by the Philistines. And then the Philistines actually captured the ark. The first time in nearly 270 years that the ark had ever left the possession of the Israelites. That's a long time. How old is this nation that we live in? You know, approximately, I mean, so 270 years, they had not been without the ark. It was taken by the Philistines. It was, in fact, it was such a dramatic event, if you remember, uh, that Eli, when, heard, when he heard the news that his sons were killed, he, was, he mourned. When he heard the news the ark was taken, he fell over dead, right? So it was a big deal. So the Philistines take this, uh, this the ark, and they decide, uh, this is an Ashdod, they take, the, they take the ark and they put it in with uh, Dagon, which is one of their gods, the god that they worshipped, not to be confused with Dagonet. Just a couple of laughs. <laughs> Thank you, Steve. Dagonet was from the south region. But Dagon, uh, so they, they had them sort of in the same area. Put it in there. The next morning they come out. And Dagon is face down in front of the altar, or in front of the ark, right? So, oh, what must be coincidence, they thought. Maybe it was a wind or there was some motion we didn't feel. Let's prop him back up, put him in there, and see what happens. The next morning they come in, and Dagon is not only face down, but his head is torn off, broken off, and his arms are broken off, Okay? So, being the stubborn Philistines that they were, perhaps they thought that was a coincidence too. Until, and as we move out of, that's basically the recap of 1 through 5 of chapter 5. And you would think at that point, maybe they would get it. Maybe they would say, this is something going on. This is, this, whatever this ark is, whatever this ark represents, the God that it represents is bigger than what we have, clearly not. So let's pick it up at verse 6. It says, the hand of the Lord, this is chapter 5, verse 6, the hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. So the hand of the Lord was heavy, they were afflicted with tumors. There are several conflicting uh, commentaries on what these tumors were. In early, early, early commentaries, there was, <laughs> I don't even know if I want to say this word in public, but it was talked about piles or hemorrhoids, okay? Am I allowed to say that on live TV? Um, but it was uh, more, more study and more commentary to, uh, with some of the uh, understanding of the culture and times. It was just tumors that were thought to be brought on in context by a plague of some kind, perhaps a bubonic plague, because there were mice involved that were destroying the crops. So here we have 
in chapter 6, the hand of the Lord being heavy. They're still in Ashdod. And it was only until chapter, verse 7, if we kind of move toward that, it says, And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. Now at this point, you think, okay, maybe they're beginning to get this and they understand what's going on, what's happening uh, in this particular situation. Maybe. And in chapter 8, or I'm sorry, excuse me, verse 8, let's continue on. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines. Now the lords of the Philistines were basically uh, the rulers of each different city. That's, that's what they were referring to, little kings of each city. So they got, gathered them together and said, What shall we do with the ark of God of Israel? They answered, Let the ark of God of Israel be brought around to Gath. Now Gath was a, um, another city. So it starts in, we start out in Ashdod. The idols destroys it, Dagon the idol. Then they're afflicted with tumors and disease. So they're like, let's send it somewhere else because it doesn't belong here. Now Gath was about 10 miles to the east. Now personally, I don't think that was quite far enough. That's like, let's send it to Wabasso and see what happens there. Well, let's pick it up in verse 9 and see what happens in Gath. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, this is Gath, causing a very great panic. And he afflicted the men of that city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So at this point, you're thinking, it's, it's already kind of taken off, taken down their, their God, their statue of their God anyway. It's done affliction and tumors in, a, in one of the cities. They send it off to another city, and it continues to do that. You would think by then, perhaps, they would begin to understand what's going on. Something's happening. I love this part. Matthew, comment, or Matthew Henry, he's a theologian kind of brought out an interesting point during this, this, this part of the, uh, in his commentary on this. He says, Matthew Henry says, Sinners lengthen their own miseries by obstinately refusing to part with their sins. Wow. I, I think that's pretty appropriate. Uh, these people, were their heels were dug in, I think. I don't think they had any sort of uh, understanding of, or maybe they did, or maybe they just thought this was another God, or maybe this was, again, coincidence that the tumors, maybe someone brought it with the ark and it just kind of was contagious, but their heels were dug in. And let me read that again. Matthew Henry says, Sinners lengthen their own miseries by obstinately refusing to part with their sins. That's just so true. And not only is that true with unbelievers, but it's also true with believers. Um, There can be times that there's things that we just don't want to give up. Our, Our heels are dug in and, yeah, I'm on that road to sanctification, but, you know, I, I, still, I still do this a little bit, or, you know, I do that, and, and the misery that that can bring is, is huge. I think there's a few lessons in this. Among these, this text that we're reading tonight, is just the stubbornness and, and, and people digging their heels in, whether it's 
uh, converted, unconverted, you know, under the covenant, outside of the covenant. Um, there was quite a bit of quite a bit of rebellion. So in Gath, we'll pick it up here back in nine. The the tumors were broke, breaking out among them. So what do they do? You'd think by then they would go, let's get it back to the Israelites. We're kind of done here, right? So we're, we went on. So, but no, hardly. Look at chapter, look at verse 10. So they sent out the ark of God to Ekron. Now watch what happens. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, they have brought around to us the ark of God of Israel to kill us and our people. It's like Philistines turning on the other Philistines. So they cried out. I think this perhaps may have been a breaking point. That point at which maybe some people are realizing that this is the judgment of the God of Israel and this ark really should be sent back or sent somewhere else because these things are horrible that are happening. Well, let's continue on because we are going to get to chapter 6, but I want to kind of just set the stage for what happens in 6. It's very interesting. So basically, we're at a breaking point. In verse 11, follow along. It says, They sent, therefore, and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines, once again, and said, Send away the ark of God of Israel, and let it return to its own place, that there it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic, sounds familiar, throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. So that's interesting, because it was heavy in Gath, but in Ekron, it was very heavy. Can you see the escalation that's happening? We start with, we start with the, their, the Dagon sculpture falling down, and then it kind of breaks apart. And then the first city, they begin to get tumors. And then, then things kind of go south a little bit further. And the second city that's sent to, they begin to cry out and freak out. By the time it gets to where it is in Ekron, they've had enough because it says here, the hand of God was very heavy there. Now you have to remember, now at this point you might be thinking, well, okay, it went and bounced around for a couple of cities. That was just over to Wabasso. And then I think Ekron was uh, maybe just a little bit further to the north, maybe seven or eight miles, right? So it's gone a few places. This is over a period, folks, of seven months. Seven months they've had their heels dug in. So it's not like it all occurred in two weeks. Okay, seven months the ark has been with the Philistines, bouncing from city to city, causing havoc. There's talk in here and some of the other documents about plagues. And uh, there, it was eating, the mice were eating their crops. Mice were thought to have brought in disease. So in a seven-month period, this is all occurring. Good grief, people. Well, if we look here, it said the men who did not die, this is, this is verse 12, the men who did not die were struck with tumors. So this presupposes not only were there tumors, but people were dying, falling off left and right, right? And the cry of the city, of the city went up to heaven. So let's pick it up in verse, or sorry, excuse me, chapter 6, verse 1. Here's where it gets crazy. 
So the ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. And the Philistines, see, prior to this, let me pause right there. Prior to this, the uh, Philistines had only brought in the civil authorities, you know, the kings, to try to make decisions over the seven-month period. And that should have been good enough. They were making governmental decisions, and, well, it's, it, it's kind of wreaking havoc here, and perhaps it's coincidental. Maybe, you know, let's kind of move it to this city and see what happens. Well, that didn't work out well. It's getting worse. Let's move it to another. So they're, they're making these governmental decisions. But if you'll notice here, in, cha- in, verse, in chapter 6, verse 2, it says, And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us with what we shall send it to its place. Okay, so these people that they called were basically the spiritual authority. Okay, so they've gone to the, through the civil accounts, and they've told them what to do, and so far, it didn't really work, and they actually decided that uh, through the civil authorities, we need to get rid of this thing. So I think at that point, the decision was made, coincidence or not, the decision was made to, to get rid of the ark, okay? But they brought in now a spiritual aspect to it, because not only are they going to get rid of it, they want to be done with the curse that is upon them. They're realizing that they're, they're tying this two, these two things together. Okay, So that's when they bring in the heavy hitters, the spiritual authority. So let's look, let's read on. In verse 3, they said, and this is they meaning the spiritual authorities, if you send away the ark of God, ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means, return him a guilt offering, then you will be healed and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. And they said, what is the guilt offering that we shall return to him? Well, let me just pause right there. (laughs) This is where it gets really weird. But um, so the spiritual authorities, even of that day, as secular as they were, understood plagues, they understood what their gods could do and not do, the symbolic nature of things. At this point, I believe they, they, the Philistines, I think they treated God, I think, based on some context here, that the God of the Ark of the Covenant was just another God, just like Dagon, their God, did things. They had so many different gods, and their gods, through supernatural, demonic things, did marvelous, wonderful things, not wonderful, but mysterious things and miraculous things. So for them, they were brought in as spiritual authorities, get, having an understanding of what, uh, what, what to do and what not to do to appease gods, which is very valid. It's very historically accurate. So here's what they said. And this gets strange, but they answered. So the question was asked, what is the guilt offering that we shall return to him? Him meaning the God of Israel. They answered five golden tumors and, and five golden mice. According to the number of the lords of the Philistines, for the same plague was on all of you and all of your lords. Verse 5, so you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from off of you and your gods and your land. Okay, so <laughs> picture this. The spiritual authorities 
are saying, absolutely, let's get rid of this thing. Obviously, it's doing something. But to, in order to do it properly, here's what you need to do. You need to make five castings, five golden little sculptures of your tumors. I, I would, I'd like to have seen that, you know, because apparently, according to some historical context, they were very accurate in their descriptions of things. Like when they made little things, they, like the mice, that were, they were pretty accurate. And, and back in that day, the way they did these things, I think it was right between the, right, at, right between the Bronze and Iron Age, okay? And I think some, some, some of the civilizations were more advanced in their casting methods. So being an artist, I know about casting and how they do things. It was typically gonna be a lost wax casting because they had wax and they had honey. And so what they do is they would create these sculptures. I mean, okay, hold still, let me, let me carve this thing. You know, as they, but they would do it in wax. And then basically a mold was made around this wax piece, right? With some holes in the bottom, holes in the top. And then molten liquid, uh, uh, gold or silver or uh, bronze, if they had a high enough temperature, would be poured in to this mold, and what would happen is the wax would burn away, and then inside of there was, was in that exact space was the actual uh, image, the actual, what would you call it, mold, the casting of whatever it was they did in wax. So anyway, that's just a little thing about how they did it. So and then they would clean it up and do a little more carving on it, and that's, it's called lost wax casting, and that's how they would do it. And so they have these five little beautiful golden tumors. I don't, no one's found those yet, but that'd be kind of an interesting thing. But, and then five little mice. But the spiritual aspect was to appease the God of Israel, to lighten up the, the plagues, lighten up the crop destruction, and lighten up the tumors. So it was very, it was very you know, clearly thought out, very spiritual in its realm. So that's what they're going to do. And at this point, still in verse, I think we're in verse five. I, I again, I said this before, but I still think they only recognized the God of Israel as another God, just based on how they went about this so religiously. Like, okay, here's what you do. You know, if you're going to appease a God, here's the here's the protocol, right? Well, what's interesting is that I don't think they had actually submitted fully to the God of Israel. I think all they wanted to do is have the, the burdens lifted off of them. So at this point, the Philistines in general, between the lords and the spiritual higher-ups, weren't really interested in bowing down to God. They didn't want to recognize the God of Israel as a God. They just wanted to, based on what they're doing here, to get the curses lifted off of them. It was simply just a, a ritual thing for them. So let's continue on in verse 6. Verse 6 is interesting because this gives, let's go ahead and read it. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaohs hardened their hearts? After he had dealt severely with them and they did not send the people away and they, depart, and they departed. Let me read that again because I just I don't think I read that properly. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? After he had dealt severely with them, did they not send the people away and they departed? Okay, so what this 
what's happening right here is there's still people, this presupposes there's still people in the region in the, of the Philistines that just quite aren't convinced. They're still not sure that these plagues are truly from the God of Israel. Because they're saying, people, why are your hearts hardened? Didn't you see what happened? They all knew the history of what happened prior in Egypt. So even, even so again, let me back up. So after the, their, their image was destroyed of Dagon, and after plagues and tumors in all these cities, people dying, crops being destroyed, final agreement between all the governing bodies and the spiritual authorities, there's still people there with these hardened hearts that are still not convinced. No, let's keep that ark. We, we want to keep it. It's a treasure. Let's hold it. It's, these things are just, this will pass. So they're getting scorned and they're getting uh, you know, a what for from these spiritual authorities there saying, why, why are you hardening your heart? We've got to get rid of this thing. So it's kind of ironic, but that's what's occurring right here. So let's talk about the plan. So how are they going to get this thing back to the Israelites? Right? So they come up with this really interesting plan. Okay? It involves four things. If you're taking notes, I always, I always wait for the, or the four things or the three things. Pastor Greg will say, okay, now here's three things if you're taking notes. Well, here's the time. So the plan is to take, for number one, two milk cows. Okay? Two milk cows, dairy cows. Number two, the ark itself. Number three, a newly constructed cart, not an old cart sitting off in, you know, Ishmael's shed there. It's a brand new cart. Because, let me tell you why. Because this was a sacred event, okay? Hence the new cart. Hence the dairy. We'll get into all this stuff. But, and then the last thing, in this box that they're going to create with brand new wood are going to go the little five, little five golden tumors and the little five gold mice. Okay, so we have four things that are going to be sent back to Israel, or to the Israelites, excuse me. Okay. Now, let's read along here. I'll just kind of, kind of catch up with where we were. Now then, and, now then, take and prepare a new cart, we talked about that, and two milk cows on which there has never come a yoke. Let's stop right there. Why is that? Because oxen and other cattle that have had a yoke on them are for a purpose. They know what to do. You put the yoke on, they go a direction, right? So here's, here's still, they're still trying, in this whole process of actually sending this thing back, they're still testing. They're still like, ah, I'm not really sure, so let's just see if this is really it. So these two dairy cows who couldn't find their way out of a barn if they tried, two dairy cows that have never been yoked. In other words, they're not designed or trained to go in a specific direction, right? So that's, 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 what we, that's why there's two dairy cows. Not only are there two dairy cows that have never been yoked and they're not used to going a direction, they have recently had calves, right? So, so, number one, the guys are thinking, you know, if this is really God, then clearly this is going to be a miracle because these, these 
cows don't know where they're going. And they're certainly going to go bonkers when they get yoked up. And they're certainly not going to make it 100 feet down the road. And to add, you know, just to test it even further, let's take their, their calves and let's put them somewhere else. Maybe they can still hear them, maybe not, because the first thing they do when they hear those, they're going to want to come back to that, right? So this whole thing is being done and, and set up almost, almost at a disadvantage just to really, really test, okay? Let's continue on here. But take their calves home away from them. And take the ark of the Lord and place it on a cart, on the cart, and put in a box at its side the figures of gold, which you are returning to him, this is the God of Israel, as a guilt offering. So let me just tell you what happens. It's kind of a fun story. I think that goes from 10 through 16. So, uh, well, let me just oh, back up. I keep fumbling over my words here, but I, it's just this craziness of this. So, then send it off and let it go on its way and watch. If it goes up on the way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, which is the, the destination point, then it is he who has undone this, who has done us this great harm. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that has struck us. It happened to us by coincidence. <laughs> so I, I can't imagine being that dug in to think of seven months of this thing destroying cities to, to still at this point think this wasn't the God of Israel. But, at the, but they're still doing it. They're still testing it out. And they're still going to make this so it's difficult to happen. So they're trying to make it really clear. Okay, So... Here's what happens. They yoke these two dairy cattle up together. And there's really no kicking and screaming, so that's interesting. And then they uh, put the cart, attach it to them, put the box on the cart that has the gold in it, the little figurines, and then they have the Ark of the Covenant, right? More than likely, the Ark is covered at this point. It usually is. Um, or maybe not. I'm not sure about that. It doesn't really, the text doesn't say, but typically it was. And so some of the lords decide to follow this thing out, right? So they're sending it, uh, I think it was probably no more than, I think, 10 miles, uh, I think, to the north, okay, We're in Beth Shemeth. And so they get this thing going, and you have the, you just picture them standing there watching and looking and just kind of nudging the cattle a little bit. So the cattle begin to walk. And the lords that decided to follow were like, oh, wow, this is cool. They're kind of moving along. Interesting. Maybe they're taking bets. Yeah, they'll make it 100 feet, you know. Well, so then, they'll, then they'll hear the, their, their calves. Because I think in here it said they were lowing along the way, right? Yeah. So the calves... And they, they shut the calves at home, they put, the, they put the stuff together, and the cows went straight, verse 12, straight in the direction of Beth Shemeth along one highway, lowing as they went. Lowing simply means mooing, making noises, maybe longing for what was back, the calves. So, and here's here, interesting, in verse 12, Lowing as they went, they turned neither to the right or to the left, 
And the lords of the Philistine went, Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. So basically, they, they've stopped. The, cow, the cows keep going. They're not turning to the left. They're not turning to the right. This is supernatural, obviously. So the lords, still not quite convinced, follow it all the way up to where, the, where they most, you know, at the closest point which they can, because there's a border there they weren't going to cross. So from a distance, they're watching. And they're watching, and the cattle keep going. And then in Beth Shemesh, there were people, the Israelites were working the fields, working the fields, doing their thing. From the distance, they see the cattle coming. They can clearly see that on, that, on those cattle, there's, a, there's the ark and there was a box. And as it came closer and closer, they realized what was happening and it settled and stopped at a certain large area stone. Let's pick this up. Let's pick this up in, in, here in verse 13. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. It's amazing. And when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. The cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stopped there. And so it just, they came in and they stopped. The cows were done. A great stone was there. So the people split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows. That's kind of sad for the cows, but they offered the cows as a burnt offering. See, these were, these were sacred in that the, the, the reason they were selected was a sacred event, even though it was from the Philistines. And so the cattle and the wood from the cart was destroyed. They made a, a, a burnt offering and a sacrifice of these cattle. And there was, you can imagine the rejoicing and the celebration that occurred when the ark was finally returned. It had never, again, it had never been gone. It had never been out of their sight for nearly 270 years. And here it comes with a couple of cows bringing it down the road. And there was a massive celebration, right? Let's continue on here. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it. By the way, the Levites, um, they were the ones that were allowed um, to, to move the ark um, and the box that was beside it, in which were the golden figures, and set them upon the great stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices on that day to the Lord. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw that, which would have been they would have seen the smoke coming up, and they would have known that it was received, and they were celebrating it. They might have even been able to hear it. And they returned that day to Ekron. So, all happy and it all ends well, right? Everybody's celebrating. It's a good day. Yeah, someone read ahead. <laughs> and then verse 19. Look at verse 19. And he, this is God, struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark 
of the Lord. Let's just stop right there. Now hold on a second. The ark is back in the possession. They celebrated. Everything's wonderful. Don't read ahead. I see you. I see you, Bob. Wait a minute. They're celebrating. The ark is back. They did a burnt offering to the Lord. They set the little golden things. It's wonderful. Seventy men struck dead. What are we talking about here? What happened? Well, doesn't this seem a little dramatic of a judgment of the Lord? Seventy men struck dead? Why? There's several, several different historical context uh, commentaries that talk about the amount of people that were struck. And uh, the most commonly agreed on now is 70, because one was 50,000 plus 70, but with all the, the historical context, it was, it was 70 men. But whether it was 50,000 and 70 men or 70 men, still, what, why? Well, the text says, In verse 19, continuing on, because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. What does that mean? What do you mean they looked upon it? Again, we get into a contextual thing here. Some commentaries say, well, they, they, they wanted to pry it open and see, you know. With all best intentions, they, they thought, well, it's been in the, the Philistines' possessions, Maybe they took the tablets out. You know, maybe they, let's just see if they, if they put something in there that shouldn't be there. Um, possibility. They could have actually looked into it. There's different uh, uh, translations. Others say that they simply looked on it and maybe they gloated. Most, most uh, commentaries agree that it was, it was looked on, whether, whether physically or from a heart, it was a presumptuous sin. I don't know what that means. A presumptuous sin. It was basically looked on with irreverence. This is where we kind of wrestle. Some people wrestle with the, the Old Testament. Um, trying to figure out, like, you know, everything was going fantastic. But let's go, let's turn, if you will, to Numbers chapter 4. Just turn with me. Hold your place in Samuel, but turn to Numbers 4. Let's just kind of get some context and background here. Numbers 4, let's go to, let's go to verse 15. Numbers 4, 15. And when Aaron and his sons has, have finished covering, this is, okay, this is instructions from the Lord. Let me just start right there, okay? Verse 15. When Aaron and his sons have finished covering the sanctuary and all the furnishings of the sanctuary, as the camp sets out, after that, the sons of Kohath 
shall come to carry these. But they, not, they must not touch the holy things, lest they die. These are the things of the tent of meeting that the sons of Kohath are to carry. Let's continue on. Verse 16, And Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, shall have charge of the oil for the light, the fragrant incense, the regular grain offering, and the anointing oil, with the oversight of the whole tabernacle and all that is in it of the sanctuary and its vessels. This is basically the moving sanctuary that, that went along with the ark. And the, and the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Let not the tribe of the clans of the Kohathites be destroyed from among the Levites, but deal thus with them, that they may live and die, excuse me, that they may live and not die when they come near to the most holy things. Aaron and his sons shall go in and appoint that each them, appoint them each to his task and to his burden. But they shall not go in, these are the Kohathites, who actually were the only ones, the only tribe that were allowed to transport the ark. Not touching it, not looking at it, but just with the with the with the rods. So it says, but they shall not go in to look out on the holy things, even for a moment, lest they die. So the Kohathites, again, the tribe that was allowed, that was you know, instructed by God to be the ones that would move it, they weren't allowed to look at it or touch it or they would die. It was very clear what God had laid out in the instructions of the ark. The ark was a representation of his presence and his holiness with them on earth. So it was very serious. Remember the story of Uzzah? Uzzah was accompanying the ark. There were oxen taking the ark and they got to a little area where the oxen kind of stumbled a little bit and there, there went the ark a little bit and Uzzah reached out absolutely and probably just trying to do the right thing, struck dead. Well, some people say that's just an Old Testament God. Remember Ananias and Sapphira? We know what happened to them in Acts. That's the New Testament. That was God setting, a, setting the tone and the standard for a brand new church, for the church. God is not to be mocked. To mock a holy God results in swift judgment. Mocking in the context of our text tonight in Samuel refers to the sin of presumption, a light view of God and of the ark, which was the physical representation of him. So just trying to wrap our heads around what this was, I think it was very clear the Israelites knew without a doubt how holy the ark should have been regarded. They knew without a doubt that they weren't supposed to look on it or gloat on it or presume. I think the sin of presumption here is that maybe there was just some rationalization. You know, the ark's been bounced around and the Philistines 
dirty hands for seven months, you know, maybe it lost a little bit of its luster. Maybe, maybe I need to go in and kind of polish it up and rescue it a little bit. No, it, that wasn't, if, if, if that was the case, then that was the sin. We must take things of God in a very high order, a high manner. It was very clear. They knew, due to customs, what, what, what the regulations were for this. And so 70 men were struck dead. Um, folks, God is just and He's holy. He's righteous. He's angry and indignation every day. Psalm says that. So if we, if we wonder about that and wonder why this happened, well, it was clear that there was a sin involved, whether it was a physical sin of looking or touching, peeking into it, or looking on it and gloating on it. It was just something that was clearly in Scripture. And God, you know, I think even uh, in some of the things I was reading, maybe from the beginning of that battle, maybe there was a casual view of the ark at that point. Maybe it was kind of familiar. Yeah, we take that thing wherever we go. It's, gonna, it's our powerhouse. And perhaps they were putting their faith in the actual ark rather than in the God who was represented in that ark. Because in that battle, it surely could have been because when they, it was at Shiloh and they're like, hey, we got a battle coming up. What do you want to do? Go get the ark. Let's bring the ark. Maybe there was a casualness to that. And maybe this right here was God reasserting His holiness and His power over a nation that just was known for drifting and drifting. Well, verse 20 concludes with such a powerful statement. I'm going to come back to it because we started with it. They're, they're reeling, and here's what they say. Then the people of Beth, the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? Wow. Just pause right there. I think you might read that at first and it might be like, well, maybe they're going, good grief. We celebrated. What in the world? I mean, didn't we do this right? Who can possibly, how can we do any, how can we be good in his eyes? No, I don't think so. This reminds me of another thing that occurred in the New Testament. Do you remember when Christ, they were in the boat and the storm came up and it was a raging storm and, and these, these fishermen the disciples, they knew what it was like to be on the water. They, I, most, if anybody fishes here, you know when it's time to go offshore and when it's not. When you're on the lake, Lake Okeechobee, and it starts to come up, you know when to get off the water. They knew it was time to get off the water. This is crazy. We're going to die. The boat's going to sink. It's going to get swamped. Jesus is sleeping down there. He comes out. What happens? He says, peace be still. And the winds stop, and the seas stop, which is an oddity. Typically, the wind will stop and the seas will stop much later. 
And you would think at that point, they'd be like, oh, everything's great. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus. You know? No. Hardly. Here's what he said. It says in Mark 4, he says, And they were filled with great fear. This is after the waves have stopped. Here's the question they asked at this point. And they said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? They were trembling with fear. I feel like that's, that was said this, with the same awe as that, who can possibly stand before this holy God? Wow. It's sobering, isn't it? A realization at this point in the text that we were in that no one under the covenant or outside of the covenant, not even, not even of course not the Philistines, but not even the Israelites, in modern times, not saved or unsaved, no one can escape the judgment of a holy God. It's a message for today. I, you know, as we wrap this up tonight, man, time flies. Wow. Um, you know, we often, I think sometimes in the church today, when I say the church, I mean just in general, the American church, perhaps the, the church across the world, we take a, a, a light view of a holy God, just a, you know, loving, maybe some greasy grace, and, and we tend to forget that the God of the Old Testament didn't stop being an angry and wrathful God after the cross. He still has that attribute. In fact, in Psalm 7, verse 11, it says, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation, that's anger, at sin, every day. Yes, we can be a friend of God. Yes, we can call Him Father. Absolutely. Yes, we have access to Him through what Christ did on the cross. What a wonderful thing that is. But remember, God didn't mellow out after the cross. He didn't set aside His perfect holiness, his wrath, his judgment. Who are we, or who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? So I think in conclusion, you know, I don't want to end on this such a dramatic note, but I think it's really important in this day and age that that. Yeah, again, yes, we have absolute fellowship. But what, so I think it makes it more powerful to know the right relationship we have with God and the enmity that is, that is bridged because of what Christ did on the cross, that we can be a friend of God, this, this God that did this, because He is just and holy, and he was, everything He did was right in His justice. See, God is both just and merciful at the same time. It's not one or the other. But we, we deserve wrath. We deserve justice. But we, he gave us mercy. And so we can have 
a right relationship and an intimate relationship with a God that is all-powerful, that is just and holy, and it just blows my mind. I just, I just, I think it just makes the cross and that, that bridge gap that much more powerful, that we understand. I'm so pleased that Greg is, has chosen to go through the Kings because when we, oftentimes we kind of we dwell in the New Testament quite a bit and it's all happy and wonderful, but then to gain a true understanding of the attributes of God, I think we need the Old Testament and we need to be reminded of what happens and what happened and who God still is. He didn't set down those things when Christ died on the cross. Amen? Amen. 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 Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this day, Lord. Again, we, I just, it's so amazing to read through the Old Testament, Father, the, these narratives to get an, a full understanding of your power and your glory and your mercy, Father. We know that you're merciful. You're, in fact, you were merciful to even the Philistines, Father. Lord, I just thank you for the plan that you had all along, Father, to send your Son to die on the cross, to not only rescue us from our sins, but to take the wrath that's deserved, Father, and to set it on your Son so that his righteousness would be on us, Father. What an amazing thing to be able to call your Father, be able to call you Father, and to have a personal relationship with you, Lord. It's just unbelievable. And I just thank you for that. Lord, I ask that you be with each one of us tonight as we leave here, as we ponder these things, as we uh, plan to read ahead for the next week, Father, that... Um, that you'll give us wisdom and that your Holy Spirit will illuminate the text as we read it, Lord. Be with us. Keep us safe this week, Father, as we uh, look forward to meeting again uh, and worshiping you on Sunday, Father. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.